Hey, welcome to the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, uh, we're talking to Andy Hunt. Andy, do you want to say hello and remind people why we love you? Hello. Um, well, I'm not sure about that part, but uh, you may have heard of me. Um, so I was one of the uh, co-authors of Pragmatic Programmer with Dave Thomas, which was, mm-hmm. I since found out, is now the most recommended book on software ever. Uh, they did an analysis of, oh, like, really? about a year or two ago, and it was the most recommended book on software development, uh, which was pretty cool. Um, and that just came out, we came out the 20th anniversary edition of that. So that book's been going strong for over 20 years and is still, you know, as, as spot on as it was back in the day. Um, I was one of the folks uh, who wrote the uh, Agile Manifesto back in, back around the turn of the century, uh, back in 2001. And um, I've been uh, uh, running the Pragmatic Bookshelf uh, for most of this time. And, you know, producing books that uh, people really seem to like, you know, really help them in their careers, help them get on top of the latest trends, latest technologies, um, all that sort of thing. I also write um, science fiction and uh, uh, thriller books uh, sort of as a, as a side project, which is a lot of fun. That sounds like fun. Let's just pick your brain on that. Sure. Which part? <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I. I, I dabble in writing fiction. I haven't done any serious writing that way for a long time, though. So um, probably probably something I would want to get back into at some point. But yeah, um, when we were talking before the show, you mentioned that you've kind of had some ideas bouncing around your head as far as what developers should know, like what, what things we should be doing, you know, stuff like that. Um, I'm a little curious, what kinds of things are you thinking about now? And I'm also a little curious as to whether or not this is different from what you would have recommended 10, 20 years ago. Oh, I'll I'll address that first. I definitely think it's different to what I would have suggested um, any number of years ago. And I'll probably recommend something different, but maybe not um, 10 years from now, because the world keeps changing, right? I mean, what software development Mm -hmm. is today is really nothing like what it was back when I started. You know, when, when I first, I've been writing code commercially, I started 40 years ago. So I was on email before there was an at sign, right? Everything was a bang path to IHNP4 <laughs> uh, in the days of Usenet. Um, so I've seen some stuff, uh, you know, over the years. And definitely, you know, back then, you could start off a project with VI main.c. And that was kind of all you had. You know, you had some some operating system calls and you had some very simple libraries to concatenate strings and take the square root. And that was about it. Anything else you wanted, you had to write, which is a far cry from today where, you know, proportionally, how much actual original code do you ever write compared to the number of libraries, frameworks, you know, everything that you've got supporting you um, it's really a very different ball game in that regard, um, which is kind of funny because, you know, you'll see these great debates spring up about, well, should we do a monolith or microservices or should we do this or we do that or whatever? And those are all kind of irrelevant um, or at least very context dependent. It's like, well, it depends. And so what? Those aren't really the interesting questions. The interesting questions, the interesting problems, I think, 
I, my top four, top four things that I think are most important um, to development here in late 2022. Number one, right off the bat, you need an absolutely impeccable, reliable, automated, build, test, deploy, CICD kind of system. You know, no excuses. It just, that has to be there. It has to be rock solid. And some folks will do that, but then not really use it well. They'll do long running feature branches or some kind of garbage like that. And it's like, no, no, no. The whole point of doing that is to get fast feedback, to do trunk-based development. Mm-hmm. Um, so number one, pipeline trunk-based development for fast feedback and get out of this, you know, ticket closing factory mentality. But I'll talk more about that later. Number two, you need effective, low friction collaboration. And, you know, one of the popular ways of talking about that these days is psychological safety in the workplace, which I think folks misunderstand a lot. It's not about sitting around holding hands and, you know, singing kumbaya or anything. It's about having free information flow in an organization. And that's absolutely critical because that's the raw material we work with. And if you don't have free information flow because some department's hoarding information or you know, folks are acting territorially or not sharing or whatever, then you're kind of screwed. And it doesn't matter at that point if you're doing microservices or monolith or you're using this framework or that. None of that matters because you're, you're just hosed right out of the gate. Um, so those are the top two. And that goes nicely, I think, to number three. You need constant learning and skills improvement. Read voraciously. You know, read a book, and when you finish it, read another book. And they should be tech books. As a publisher of tech books, I can somewhat selfishly say that. But they should also be not technical books. You know, read things on anthropology, on psychology. Read fiction. Um, I made a, a real mistake, I think, growing up. For many years, I would not really read any fiction books because I was under the impression that, well, it's fiction. Somebody just made this up. It's not true. Not realizing that fiction books, have it, it, it's a different thing. Yes, the story is fiction, but it contains a lot of truth. And that's a very important distinction that mm-hmm. I think we miss out on, and especially when you start talking about the role of ethics um, in software development, which is a growing and very important topic you need to have a little bit more exposure to that, which I think you get from reading books by people with different points of view, uh, you know, different realms, you know, reading science fiction or historical fiction or, you know, maybe something you don't normally read. But being able to see what the rest of the world is thinking and up to, that's a very important way of doing it. Um, much better than, say, following somebody on Facebook or, or Twitter, perhaps. Um, so we need that free information flow. We need that collaboration. We need the constant learning and skills improvement because really the two things that programmers have to do all the time is communicate and learn. That's really what the job comes down to. We're communicating with our team members, with the sponsors, the end users, whoever that might be, with the system itself. And we have to learn from all these things. We learn 
how to work with our teammates. We're learning from the developing system under under construction. We're learning the uh, the arena that we're programming in the, the the domain area. We're learning the new technology, right? You know, it's a very old joke, but today's Thursday. There's been three new JavaScript frameworks just came out this morning, right? I mean, it's you know, it's an absolutely mm-hmm. endless fire hose of okay, we have to do this now, um, and here's this new thing and whatever it might be, right? So we're learning all the time. You, we can't just sit back and say, okay, I know a programming language now, I'm done. It doesn't work that way. Um, so skills improvement, learning, third pillar of, of what's most important. And the last thing for now, number four, we have to rethink what we're building and how we're building it. We want to be able to design replaceable, disposable software. If it doesn't go to plan or if the world changes out from underneath us, we want to be able to rip it out and replace it with something else. That's a much better way of thinking about software than trying to waste time making it maintainable or extensible or any of those sorts of popular words. Because the problem is when you want to make software maintainable or extensible, you're fortune telling. You're trying to imagine a future where the software will be used this way or this might change or that might change. And if anything, COVID, Russia's invasion, the you know, uh, RSV flu, all the stuff that's happening in the world, we suck at fortune telling as a species, right? Massive things will come up and we, we're unprepared for it. We have no idea that these things could change. And wow, look, they do. So. We want software to be replaceable and disposable and not quite so big chunks of critical. Um, G. Paul Hill has a great saying. He says, we really need to look at taking many more, much smaller steps. And I think that's absolutely critical because, you know, it kills me when someone's going doing like some kind of, you know, nonsense BS story point planning meeting and something is, you know, 12 points or, or something huge. It's like, no, 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 that's way too big a bite. That's too big a chomp. You're never even going to finish that. Um, If you really must estimate in story sizes, there's really only three answers. Something either has a story size of one, meaning you could do this in maybe a couple hours and have something, you know, passing tests and to show for it. That's answer one. Or answer two, it's too big. It's more than one, so you've got to slice it into thinner pieces so you can get it down to a number of things of size one. Or number three, I don't know. I don't know how big this really is. So it's going to take some learning, some prototyping, some discussions um, to get down to the point where it's a size of one. So really, the only appropriate size to work on is one. Otherwise, it's too big a bite and you haven't thought through that yet. So those are the the four, I think, most important things. And if you notice, they're all kind of around the same sort of theme. You've got this continuous paradigm, continuous integration, continuous deployment, continuous learning, you know, continuous discussions with the users, the sponsors, you know, continuous, uh, 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 you know, discovery, if you will. I hate to call it requirements, 
right? We used to call it requirements analysis, <laughs> which I think was the worst possible, right? He's Chuck Charles chuckling there. That's like the worst possible term because it <laughs> well. just, it, right? It's, it's static. It screams staticness. It's like the requirements are sitting here in this steaming pile outside my office and I'm going to go through and analyze them and, you know, come up with stuff. And it has never worked that way, right? The world does not function that way. It's, it is a journey of shared discovery. You're learning what the system can do. The users, whoever's involved, the sponsors are learning what it can do as it comes up and starts to do its thing. And, you know, you get some unexpected surprises. You know, there's that sort of Heisenberg nature of software that once it's doing its thing, you realize, oh, well, what I really wanted you know, was it to do this or mm -hmm. let's change this? Or even though I say, you know, in this day and age, you started off with exactly what it should have been, but now it's six, 12, 18 months later, the world has changed. And that's not what you need to do anymore. You need to pivot. You need to do something a little bit different. Um, so one way I like to try to explain people to function in this sort of an environment is to think about building software in, you know, these many more, much smaller steps, very thin slices, you know, end to end. So you, so you start off day one of the project and you write hello world, but it goes from one end of the project to the other, all the way from the you know, web client or whatever front end through to the database, whatever crap you got in the middle, your, your ML engine, your, you know, whatever, but it's only hello world, but it touches all the bits and pieces. And there's a great, um, when I give talks, I got a great set of images uh, that goes with this. And I didn't know this, but when they built the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, do you know how they actually built that? It, it's really fascinating. They started basically with like a single cable. You run one cable from one end to the other, and you use that to bring the next cable over. And you use those two to bring the next. And there's a picture um, you know, old black and white of, of maybe, I don't know, a dozen cables strung across um, the bay there with workers hanging off of them, adding stuff on, you know, adding, you know, clamps and bits and more cables and this and stuff. And, you know, you get, you get up to the point where well, it'll hold enough weight, you can start bringing decking over um, and so on and so forth. And that's how we should build software, thin end-to-end -end slices, because that gets you into those very small steps. So you have a nice small success. All the you know, unit tests turn green. Everything's good. You're proceeding from a stable uh, position all the time. So technically what you have is always deployable. You don't have this, you know, code freeze for two months before you release it or, uh, you know, this, well, we can't demo it to the potential investors because the code doesn't compile right now. You know, these are not statements you want to hear yourself <laughs> making, like ever, right? You know, and we, and of course we do. I mean, cause of course we fall into these, uh, uh, you know, these sorts of issues, but, but we don't have to. Um, and I would actually argue, you know, and we've been saying this kind of stuff for, for decades now, right? You know, this style used to be called, you know, walking skeleton. We called it traceable development in pragmatic programmer. Um, you know, the idea is out there. And I think relatively few people actually do it. And maybe we could have gotten away with that back in an earlier day. But 
in this day and age, it's actually even more critical to get that first end-to-end step running because you've got so much you know, configuration and third-party bits that have to line up for the thing to work. Um, there was a great infographic probably a couple of years ago now that showed uh, AWS's recommended deployment for a simple WordPress blog. And of course, it used all the, the AWS bits and pieces, right? So you, you had fallover and, and failover and, and DNS replicate, you know, all this stuff happening. And the bloody thing looked like the subway map to Manhattan. You know, it was just ridiculously complex and complicated for a blog. This wasn't even, right. you know, a, a, a big app, right? This was, this was sort of the minimum price of entry. And that was before Kubernetes became, uh, you know, a thing. Right. So now you've got your doctors, your containers, your Kubernetes orchestration, all this crap going just to get Hello World up and running ain't as simple as it once was. (laughs) Well, I mean, there are a couple of ideas here that I'm enjoying, but in, in this case, you can just spin up a VPS and install WordPress on it. Right. Like that's still an option. Or you can go find a service that's specialized to WordPress and stand it up, right? But and, and we have this should. idea that we have to do things the other way. And, yeah. you, you know, in our software, you know, now we're, you know, taking the metaphor the other direction. And so it's, yeah, I've got I've got to deploy it to Kubernetes and I've got to jump through all these hoops and I have to use a, a cloud storage for my images and this and this and this and this and this instead of, yeah, just, hey, you know, maybe it stores the images locally on the machine for right now when you do an upgrade yeah. and then you roll the next piece and then you roll the next piece. And then I like the direction <laughs> that goes because then it's not this upfront overwhelming thing that I have to figure out. Especially with that kind of thing is vendor lock-in. So your AWS WordPress example, I would avoid that at all costs because using their cloud formation and all the other utilities that they have to deploy something, I'm not going to be able to easily lift and shift that to another provider if I choose, which I've had to, in my career, had to do that uh, on a single application a few times because the company direction changes, as you were saying, Eddie, as the world changes, so must we if we want to stay current. And so the organization had different partners and decided to shift infrastructures. And the times that we had used something like a cloud formation, it was a real pain to replicate that on Google Cloud or Azure. Mm-hmm. So I think using Kubernetes isn't a big deal. You know, I, I'm not a huge fan of Kubernetes. I like the idea. I'm more of a Docker Swarm person. But I would still prefer Kubernetes over something like CloudFormation because that's because of Google opening it up, it's kind of been a standard. You have basically any host offering some sort of Kubernetes that's compatible with your infrastructure scripts, with your YAML files. So I think from that perspective, it's okay. <clears throat> so, But anything that's going to cause a vendor lock-in, I have an issue with. And I think that kind of speaks to your third point about, uh, you know, writing maintainable code or, you know, clever code or whatever, where if I am going to be um, 
writing something that integrates with the third party like Twilio, just a simple SMS service. I don't want to be locked into that vendor where if we have to switch to another one because company direction changes, then I don't want to have to rewrite half my application. I want to only touch that one small Twilio integration piece. So having abstraction layers on top of Twilio, so my application consumes Twilio through this extracted layer or this interface oh, for it. Absolutely. You need you have to have insulation, you know, really with anything third party. I mean that that that's that's sort of a given, um, you know, as in as much as you can in this day and age, because absolutely things change. You know, uh companies get bought by Microsoft and now you know you you can't use them or now you have to use them or whatever it might be. Um that that's sort of always been the case. Um but I think the bigger issue here is folks tend, it seems to me, to gravitate towards very overly complicated higher-end solutions when they're not needed. You know, I mean, I'm constantly telling people, you are not Netflix. You are not Spotify. You don't have billions of streams of users to, to engineer with and contend with. You have, you know, a much smaller user base. So like Charles was saying earlier, store the image locally for now. You know, that's probably fine for whatever stage of growth, you know, that you're at. Um, and I find it really interesting. I don't know if you all have seen um, Wardley Maps, Wardley Mapping. Um, but it's a really interesting look at how to place the, the sort of business uh, activities on a spectrum from custom-made and Genesis through to, you know, something that you, you, you would just buy to something that's just commodity. You don't even think about it. So, you know, electrical power is a commodity for the most part, unless you're Google and you need to be next to Niagara Falls to jack into the power. You know, for most of us, electricity is just a commodity. We don't think about it. A lot mm -hmm. of these sorts of services that we used to have to write by hand, it's just a commodity. now. You, you don't even think about it. You, you, don't even, you don't even particularly worry about vendor lock-in because it's just such a common, ubiquitous, small thing. But of course, this is a spectrum all the way from we have to build it completely ourselves to we buy it, but we have to customize it through it's you know, just part of the, of the woodwork and we don't even care. The interesting thing with Wardley Maps is that wherever these things are now on the spectrum, they're always gradually drifting to the right, you know, gradually drifting towards the side of becoming commodity. And it's something you don't even worry about. So today's fanciest, you know, chat GPT, stable diffusion sort of AI stuff, which is, you know, very much in its experimental, uh, you know, interesting viral stage, that will end up being a feature on a chip that's just there and you just use and you don't even think about it um, in time. And maybe that's a short time, maybe that's a long time, but eventually that's what happens to everything. It drifts over and becomes a commodity, um, which is interesting. So as you're trying to figure out you know, where to add value in your products, in your organization, you know, what you want to, you know, how you want to make your mark on the world, you really need to take a more careful look at, is this something we should be writing at all in the first place? Or should we just be using, you know, a library, you know, part of a framework to do this? Or is there a real advantage to not doing what everyone else is doing and adding something unique and, and a different take on it? Um, 
I found this, you know, absolutely was the case with the, the pragmatic bookshelf business. When we started off, we basically had to build our own um, storefront, our own shopping cart, uh, all of our own integrations to other vendors, all this kind, of, all these sorts of things because uh, our own EPUB generation, our own PDF generation, because none of this stuff existed out there in the world. It just, it wasn't even available. We had to do it all custom. Fast forward 20 years, we're doing almost none of that custom anymore. That's all through a third party, through a provided library, or through a service, you know, whatever it might be, because all these things went from being you know, custom needed to, oh yeah, hell, everyone's got that. Everyone and their dog has a shopping cart. Everyone mm-hmm. has a you know, EPUB generator, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, which gets back to my point of because of this constant drive uh, in our capitalist economy towards commodification of these sorts of things, you really need that replaceability aspect to it. And as, as Dave was saying here a second ago about avoiding vendor lock-in, sure, but you have to you have to start off on the sort of premise that any vendor you use, even if it's real foundational like AWS versus Azure or whatever, you have to assume that that could go away in a heartbeat for any reason. You know, Twitter is a good example. You know, suppose you had, you know, very tight integration to Twitter and this was a big part of your, your business plan, a big part of your app. And now all of a sudden somebody buys it and the rules have changed. And you may not be using that in another two weeks, six months, whatever. You know, I mean, those literally, these are the scope of changes that we, we sort of face in the real world, which is daunting to say the least. And I wanted to say something about your fourth point about keeping the stories very small and short. I I think I'm right there with you where often enough, I'm given a huge story. And Mm -hmm. I kind of see it like the butterfly effect where the smaller the story is, you know, the closer you are to that, you know, squashing that butterfly, the more accurate you can predict the short-term effect that it'll have. As a story grows, you're at a much further uh, perspective away from that butterfly, and the accuracy is going to be all over the place. It's impossible to predict what's going to actually happen, how long it's actually going to take. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And the interesting thing to me is, we, we, you know, if, if you have any experience in industry, you know these things. You, you've seen these things happen. You know, you, you realize that's sort of the case. You might not be able to do anything about that because, you know, the process mm-hmm. that your organization is using doesn't allow you the flexibility to put it into smaller slices or talk to the user or, or whatever. I was given a workshop the other day and one of the... um one of the issues comes up, it's like, well, in this case, you, you should talk to your users to to work through this issue. And this one guy sort of blew up. He's like, I never met our users. I have no idea who they are or how they're using the software. It's like, well, I think we've just diagnosed your problem, <laughs> <laughs> you know, right there. Um, but that's, it's an interesting point because, right, okay, so we're saying like right here that, yes, you know, being able to to slice up a, the understanding of a requirement into very small approachable steps, that's a skill. That's something you need to learn how to do. It's, do, do they teach that in university or college? Hell no, right? 
Is this something you get on 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 the job training explicitly? No. There's a couple workshops on it. There might be a book or two here or there, but it's it's kind of a very, you know, it's just not talked about. Um, and that's kind of the biggest problem with all these issues. These are things that, you know, we've identified, other folks have identified as being very important, and it's not anywhere in our educational pipeline, either in, in formal education or code camps or, you know, on-the-job um onboarding uh, kinds of things. It's just, it's not there. Um, so one thing that, that um, I've been working on to try to, to help that, one of, the, one of the workshops that I give through the, uh, the Grows Method Institute is we have this kind of uh, project simulation. And it's different from the other sorts of project simulators I've seen out there. I've seen a lot of things that'll put you through the paces of you know, basically how to be a ticket closer, how to how to work with, with GitHub or GitLab and how to get a ticket in Jira and how to close it and, and go through the steps and, you know, move it from here to there on your Kanban board. It's, it's very mechanical and, you know, to me, not very interesting. Um, so we have a very different approach. We have this project simulator where you accept um, activities to work on, but you have to make decisions. You have to decide, am I going to invest a lot in this feature, or am I going to do it cheap and cheerful? And the answer is not always clear which one's better. Sometimes it's better to go one way. Sometimes it's better to go the other way. Um, decisions come up where, okay, the team has stumbled onto this problem. We've got this issue with this team member, or this edict came down from on high, or this team is threatening to quit because of this, or whatever, the sort of situations that come up in real life. And you have to make decisions of, well, what do you do about it? And your decisions impact your health scores of, you know, how healthy is the team? How good is your ability to deploy? How happy are your users? How happy are your executives? How happy is the team? All these health scores get affected by your decisions. And you roll dice to see what actually gets deployed. Because it is, within a limited scope, kind of random about how much is actually going to happen because of, you know, real-world vagaries. But the best part that I've found from, from doing this, this simulation is teams get a chance to talk about these sorts of issues, the things that we're talking about here. They get to talk about real issues that they really aren't allowed to talk about at work because the stakes are too high. You know, in the middle of the project that they're on, they can't say, well, Fred over here has totally screwed the pooch and this is why this isn't working and you know, whatever, whatever it might be. But here, it's just a game. It's a simulation. It's like, well, okay, if this were to happen in real life, this is what we really should do. Uh, we, we can't do this at our actual work, but here's what we should do. And you get really good discussions out of it um, because people are in a psychologically safe environment where they can exchange ideas and have the sort of, of information flow outside the scope of their normal job. And then, you know, they go back, you know, after, after going through our, our, our simulation and our debriefing and everything, and they go back with these lessons like, well, okay, well, you know, when we did this in the simulator, we were able to, you know, make this sort of decision. What would it take to do that here? Who, who do we have to convince? What do we have to, to do? So I found that to be really helpful um, for folks to, you know, be introspective and think about what they can do to make their teams better and how to handle 
the sorts of issues that commonly come up that we know good answers to, but that aren't commonly practiced, um, that folks don't really do out in the real world. And they could, they can, and now some of them do, uh, you know, having gone through this, this sort of an experience. Yeah, because at the end of the day, that 20 story point story that you say is going to take a month or whatever, <laughs> you're not going to go and hit your keyboard all at one time over the month and just, it's done. Right. You're going to break it down. Okay, what do I need to do first? And then you say, okay, well, then what? And then what? And then what? Like you take your own time after you've been assigned the story to break it down yourself. And then you discover like, okay, so I need to create all this back-end logic. I need to create these items, the front-end logic, the tie-ins between, or whatever your situation is. And at the end of that month or whatever time frame, you look back and you say, oh yeah, this should have been broken out. Like it could have very easily been broken out because you actually spent the time to go through that story to see what it required, what it needed to, what needed to happen on there. So right, if you right are now, doing a backlog grooming. Here's the real problem though. Yes, but everything you just described, you're now as a developer sitting there learning all these things by yourself. You have this knowledge now that the rest of the team does not have. And that needs to get shared out somehow. Maybe that comes up in a code review. Maybe it comes up in a meeting. Maybe it doesn't. And you've got every developer doing this. So you've got all this siloed learning happening, um, which maybe that's okay. Probably it's not. Um, and this is where doing something like pair programming or even better, mob programming, ensemble programming, um, really helps because now you're learning as a team. You're learning as a group. You're, you're spreading this around, you know, trying to figure out. Because as you just said, right, when you're in the middle of doing this, you realize things. Questions come up. It's like, well, oh, geez, hell, if we do this, that means we're going to have a problem over here. Or we can't do this because this is contradictory to, you know, something else that you know, we were told to do. So these things come up. And if you've got an overly siloed team, well, first of all, that's not a team. That That's just a bunch of people working on tickets, right? <laughs> you know, for it to be a team, they actually have to do <laughs> things together, um, you know. And and as an aside, I mean, I I think of, you know, people say, well, what do you think is one of the most interesting things in software, you know, to come up recently? And it's not ML. Um, it's ensemble programming or mob programming. I think that's a really interesting idea. Um I have heard from people that that has worked remarkably well in their organizations. And given that we are almost all really serious introverts, that, that's why we got into programming in the first place, you know, this, this kind of runs counter to, to what we, where we're coming from and what we're thinking. But it also makes a whole lot of sense because, as I said, what are the two most important things that programmers do? Communicate and learn. These are better handled as group activities, right? Especially if you're off doing something that's, you know, never been done before. I mean, if you're just 
you know, let's face it, if you're just doing something like, you know, adding a field to the database or, or, or you know, something sort of menial, you, that's not a big deal. You don't need a mob to do that. You probably don't even need a pair to do that. You've done it a bazillion times. You're just doing it again. It's just, that's just one of those things. But if you're exploring a new requirement, a new user need, and no one really knows how this is going to work, or more importantly, how this is going to affect everything else, or what the implications of it are, that's when you probably want to get more people involved um, and kind of work on it together. And again, that's a that's a skill. Um, I know a lot of folks who've been very successful with that, who've adopted that. This is not something we promote in academia, right? You know, group projects never work out well uh, in college. Um, <laughs> I have a longer story about that, but the first group project I did in college, this one guy wasn't contributing. We ended up chasing him through his frat house. And the last I saw of him was his feet disappearing up into the attic trap door. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's not, yeah, my that's not what we talked about. Mob programming. Yeah. 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 But, but my experience was the same. It was like, okay, Two of us got together and did the whole thing, right? And the other two or three either showed up and watched or didn't show up at all. Sorry for not showing up, Chuck. <laughs> I, I, I was bitter. that guy. I'm still bitter, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's my issue with my programming is because I am such, a, such an introvert. Where, you know, I know this uh, past couple of years has been really horrible for a lot of people, especially the extroverts that just thrive and refill on just people, you know, talking with people. You know, I can, I have empathy for them. But for me, being such an introvert, I really thrived during the pandemic, just being at home, not having to go out not being able to go out, really. So the whole idea of mob programming kind of scares me that I don't want to be, you know, working with a bunch of people, even though they're my teammates who I talk to every day. I don't want to be on a three-hour-long remote call doing, you know, pair mob programming. I want to just kind of be in my own little corner doing my own thing and that's that's very common and i i i totally empathize with that because you know despite the fact that i you know used to go out and do conferences and keynotes and talks and everything i'm a huge introvert i mean i've i've never enjoyed that aspect of my career i would much rather as you say sit in my corner and and do my thing and the the thing is it depends on the activity. It depends on what you're doing. Yeah. So, you know, I've seen places where like, oh, hey, this is great. You know, everyone needs to be, you know, working together. So we're having a total open open office plan. You know, back when people worked in offices, you know, back in the before times when people worked in offices, right? That was open, open floor plan, plans. which, oh, right. I mean, it, it, hell, that's basically the 10th level of hell right there. It's, it's just mm -hmm. awful because it's not, it's not appropriate. Now, a big breakout room where you can deliberately go and say, okay, guys, we need to brainstorm this thing and work together on this, this issue. Great. That's fine. Because 
there are times when you need to do that. And you, I consider, you know, brain, mob programming to me is basically brainstorming, except you're writing down code while you're doing it. It's basically a brainstorming session is, is how I sort of view it. And there are absolutely times where you need to do that. There's times when you need to be able to go into your office and close the door and have a nice, quiet think. And, you know, there's places in the middle. Um, you know, there's a new person on the team. You want to, uh, you know, bring uh, uh, she or he along and, and train them up. Pair programming is great for that. Here's how this, you know, here's a quick tour of the code base. Here's how we do this here. This is a place we're having a problem, whatever it might be. The basic thing is, you know, one size doesn't fit all. And context absolutely matters. And this is where almost all of these sort of attempts to, at, at methodologies or process all fail down because they want to they want to end up with the world looking like a Play-Doh machine where you chuck developers in one side, squish the handle, and mm -hmm. code pops out the other end. And it absolutely yep. does not work that way, right? It has never worked that way. We would love for it, you know, as a business owner, Hell yes, that's dynamite. I wish it worked that way. It does not. And, you know, it slays me that, the, you know, you talk about the Agile Manifesto, circling back to that for a minute. The first point, the first of the guidelines of, of the, the manifesto says individuals and interactions over processes and tools. And people ask, well, well, what are the second through fourth points? It's like, I've forgotten because we haven't gotten to them yet because we keep screwing up the first one. We haven't got <laughs> this one right yet. You know, you get a team together and the first thing they say is, what tools are we going to use and what process are we going to use? It's like, wrong question, you know? And, and here, talking about mobbing versus, yeah. you know, uh, thinking alone and whatnot, it's all about individuals and interactions. And in this case, sometimes you need the larger interaction with the team, sometimes you don't. It depends. And, you know, one size just yeah. doesn't fit all. The other thing about the manifesto that, that kind of slays me is the very first line says we are, I forget what it's, discovering or uncovering. Um, we're discovering uncovering. new ways, uncovering new ways of developing software. Better ways. By doing it and helping other people do it. And, that also got wildly misunderstood because, you know, what came out, then everyone's like, oh, good, we're going to do Scrum and use Jira. <laughs> it's like, okay, it, there's no way, nowhere there does it say that. It says we're uncovering new ways of doing stuff. And largely, we haven't been. You know, we got stuck with people doing half of Scrum badly and saying, you know, you know I, I've been on record now for some many years saying that, you know, Agile now means to people, we do half of Scrum badly and we use Jira. And that that's their definition of Agile <laughs> and their definition of software development. And um, and they're not wrong. I mean, that, that's what they're doing. Uh, but we're supposed to be uncovering new ways of doing things. And some folks are. I mean, you know, myself and my friends, we're coming up with things. The, uh, the group behind the uh, Beyond Budgeting movement, I think, is very important because they had the insight that a lot of what screws up development projects comes from the accounting department and comes from the idea of batch-based accounting, batch-based funding. You get your annual budget. You know, you're, it's like what happened to iterative and incremental folks, you know? All that goes out the window when you have a batch-based <laughs> organization that you have to interface with. 
So of course it doesn't work. So, you know, there's some bright spots. You know, people are figuring out new ways of doing things and better ways of organizing ourselves. But it's, you know, it, it really seems to me is kind of yeah, a little too little too late. Um, we have a long ways to go still. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's funny because uh, the last couple of places that I've been putting my time in at, yeah, they have these heavyweight processes that you put into place. They're, they're quote unquote agile processes, right? I mean, Scrum Master means the guy who makes me go to all the meetings. realistically, (laughs) right? And, you know, yeah, it's okay. Well, we're going to go through and, you know, I mean, even the stand-up meetings I go to anymore, it's okay. Well, we're going to go down the list and we're going to solve everybody's problems, you know? And so they're really, it's not about individuals or interaction. It's all about the process and tools. And, And it seems like a lot of the agile stuff has gone that direction. And the reality is, is like you said, we're all different, right? Um, some of the things that are going to light me up are going to be different from the things that light you up and vice versa. We probably have some things in common, but we'll figure that out as we interact and, and work together and, and, and kind of focus on those things. One other thing I wanted to point out, though, is that I think a lot of times we even lump people into the camps of introvert versus extrovert. And I'll tell you, you know, I, I don't get energized by being around a ton of people. I really enjoy talking to people. I enjoy spending time with people. But if if you followed me around a conference, you'd see about four o'clock. I will disappear to my hotel room for a couple hours just so that I can recharge. Right. I, I'm impressed. Um, but you the can flip make side is, is that I. <laughs> right. It depends on the day. Um, but the the flip side is, is that like I have a brother who's an extreme introvert and he has some other things going on in his life. But, um, you know, during the pandemic, he didn't thrive, right? Because he didn't really have at least that baseline of, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm pretty comfortable around my family. You know, I have a, a tradition of faith that I belong to. I have, you know, I have these other things that kind of stack in there that give me scaffold around my life so that I can, you know, I can stay centered even if I don't really want to talk to others, others being people outside of my inner circle. And so that's the other thing that I think is really important here is we try to understand people by categorizing them without realizing that sometimes the category is uh, counterproductive to what we actually want from them. And so, you know, understanding that somebody's an introvert, but also understanding that they have a healthy home and, and um, you know, other life that, that supports where they're at then they can afford to not have to go out. And and anyway, I, I found that really interesting. So you really are down to understanding the people that you're doing things with, doing life with, doing work with, doing business with, and and those interactions. And yeah, I have to say that's both the most fulfilling part and the thing that I think is probably the most underrated. Um, one last thing that I'll add, and I've said this on the podcast several times, but um, this same brother and one of my cousins, they were both going through computer science programs at the same time, different universities. And they asked me within about a week of each other, they're like, they're like, okay, so what is the most important thing I can learn, right? What, what, what is the most critical skill that I can build, right, while I'm in, at, at school? And I looked at them and I said, you have to learn to work with people, right? And they, they, they couldn't believe it. They were like, you know, it's not this algorithm. It's not this 
magic tech <laughs> ball, whatever, right? It's just like, no, no. Show you, me you how have to, to be able to work with people, right? Yeah. It's never sort it and then tech. reverse sort it. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's yeah. never about the tech. It's you know Jerry Weinberg used to say, right. every problem is a people problem. At the end of the day, you know, it's never a tech problem. You know, Twitter right now is not a tech yeah. problem. Um, you know, and any of these sorts of things. Um, but you know, you're talking about um, talking about that idea of understanding people in their context and how you can't really categorize people on simplistic buckets like that. There's a interesting theory in I, I think it was in the psych literature that says that your personality is not a set of buckets like that. But in fact, your personality is an emergent phenomenon from your network relations with everyone else. So, you know, you are a brother, a father, a son, a employee, a church mm -hmm. member, a, you know, sport team member, a bar attendee, a conference speaker. You know, it's all these different relationships with other people. And it's that network that actually forms your personality. So you are a network, not a monolith, which I find kind of a, an interesting mm -hmm. way to look at it. And because again, this makes it, you, you, you really can't put people into simple buckets that he's an introvert, he's a programmer, she's a manager, she's a, a tech writer, you know, uh, she you know, belongs to this ethnic group or this country or this, you know, whatever it might be. You know, none of us are that simple. Um, you know, I know quite a few people who aren't even from a single company, they, uh, country. They have dual citizenship or more. They have multiple passports. You know, you say mm -hmm. you work for a particular company. Well, okay, this year, you know, give it a year or two. That's dynamic. That's going to change. Um, and it kind of slays me because a lot of programmers will introduce themselves as I'm a Java programmer. God help you. Or I, I program in Elixir or I'm a Rust developer or, I, you know, they identify mm -hmm. themselves so much with the tech. And it's like, that. who cares? I mean, that's, you know, yes, right now Rust is exciting and interesting and different. And that's very cool. And it's got a steep learning curve. So, hey, kudos to you for mastering that because that, that, that's a thing. But that's not who you are. You know, that's one of your network relationships. So we've kind of talked our way around a lot of stuff, and I think that's all important. But if you had to boil it down to just one thing that somebody could focus on, right? It's just like, hey, master this, right? Or deeply understand this. What would that thing be at this point? Fast feedback. Fast feedback is, I think, the most critical, most underlying thing because it takes a lot of different forms, right? Why do we do you know, test-driven development because it has nothing to do with testing. It has nothing to do with correctness or validation. It's to get mm -hmm. feedback on the code. Why do we do pair programming? Well, it helps to mentor. It helps share information. You get shared learning, blah, 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 blah. Great. It's about feedback. It's about getting results. You know, why do we do pipe? Why do we do a, a CICD in the cloud and, and run the tests automatically? so we can get feedback as fast as we can. Why do we show it to a user or user representative right after we've written it? So we can get feedback as fast as we can. You know, there was a, a metaphor back in the early days that said software development is like you're exploring a giant cave 
in the dark, like Colossal Cave, right? Pitch dark. And you've got a tiny, tiny little flashlight. You know, speed is not a quality you prize here. <laughs> you don't want to run as fast as you can in the dark. This is a bad idea. You want to take small steps and you don't want to outrun your headlights, as the saying goes, right? You got to stay into the beam of the flashlight. You can only go as far as you can mm -hmm. see. Or in other words, you can only go as fast as your feedback allows you to go. It's when you outrun your feedback, you get screwed. So you really can't, you can only go as fast as, as the rate of feedback allows, which is why we want all these, all the things that we want. We want to get that feedback as fast as we can so we can correct the direction we're going in. So we don't fall off the cliff in the dark or run into the stalactite or whatever 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 you like in your metaphor um you know and that's the most critical thing because all the stuff that we do wrong the story size that's too big right get lack of feedback not knowing the user not discussing things with the user they don't see the product till it's done too late to get meaningful feedback they hate it you get bad reviews mm -hmm. you know you're in a world of trouble um you know all these sorts of things really end up all almost all boiling down to a question of of timely feedback makes sense and that's one of the you know circling back to the agile manifesto too it's responding to change over following a plan right it's yeah having that measure that feedback is understanding the change you're facing as you come into it and you know as humans we hate change you know we wish it didn't happen you know we don't <laughs> You know, Kent Beck's first book, the subtitle was Embrace Change. It wasn't grit your teeth and work your way through it, which is kind of what we do at best. <laughs> Usually we just ignore it and hope it'll go away. Um, and that, that doesn't work so well. <laughs> yeah, that always works. <laughs> yeah, true. But yeah, embrace change. It's because it, you know, <laughs> the other sobering thought that I guess I'll leave you on is right now in in late 2022, we are experiencing the slowest rate of technological and social change we will likely ever see. In other words, the rate of change is monotonically increasing. So whatever rate of change we're seeing now, it's only going to get faster, which yeah, puts true. a pretty big onus on us to up our game and be able to manage and deal with that and embrace that in a better fashion than we have been. Makes sense. Well, if that's where you're going to leave us, let's go ahead and uh, move on to the next segment of the show. Um, now, I've been talking to some of the hosts on some of the shows, and I'm going to add a segment to the show right here. Um, so <laughs> we've done picks, and a lot of times folks kind of ramble on about what they're working on. And so I just figure we'll give everybody a shot at telling people what they're working on, and then we'll do the picks. So, uh, you know, Dave can tell us what's new with Drifting Ruby or any of the other projects he's got working on. Um, I'll tell you about what's going on with Top End Devs. And Andy, it looks like you're still doing uh, Grows Method and, you know, Pragmatic Bookshelf and all that stuff. So, uh, Dave, why don't you go first? What are you working on that you want people to know about? Oh, geez. Right now, I'm just working on getting healthy with the kids. Uh, I have four kids, and we've been through this cycle of flu and strep throat and just we're back to another sickness now so just getting healthy you know taking time don't 
don't burn the candle at both ends, so to speak. You know, take time to get rest. And that's what I've been working on. Uh, you know, I still do my Drifter Ruby episodes, the screencast every week. And I've actually, uh, I looked back recently and I have gone through and done one episode every single week without fail for the past five years. And oh, wow. each episode takes about 20 hours to uh, prepare, record, edit, and publish. So it's a definitely a commitment. And there's times when I go on vacation and I don't have my computer with me. You know, a lot of times I just won't have internet or my computer. So I will double up one week, you know, put in the extra effort to do the extra recording and then have it release on a the release date. So I never miss a week. So, but it does take a toll. And it is a commitment that, you know, I think that I have uh, now shown that it's been every single week uh, for the past five years. But I enjoy doing it. And as I've done it, you know, much to what Andy has been saying this whole time, it's when I first started out, it took maybe 30 to 40 hours for each episode. But as I've gotten better audio equipment that would remove my breath sounds and stuff, making the editing a lot easier, as I've become more familiar with my tools, I changed my processes. You know, it wasn't a situation where, no, this is how I'm going to prepare an episode and record an episode because this is the way I've always done it. You know, if I was in that kind of mindset, then I would still be doing it the same way, taking 40 hours a week to do a single episode. And I've streamlined the process, I think, almost as much as I can now, where I'm able to crank them out, spend less time on each episode while maintaining the same quality, if not better, because I have more experience in doing it. So get healthy and you know, embrace change, as Kim Beck said, as Andy pointed out. Nice. Uh, I'm going to throw in my, my stuff real quick that I've been working on. Um, so yesterday evening was our first book club. Uh, you can go sign up for that at topendevs.com slash book club. Um, and we're reading Clean Architecture by uh, Robert C. Martin. We had Uncle Bob on the call. Um, it was our first call, so we only had a few of us there. But it was a lot of fun. It was great to kind of go through um, you know, these books and talk about what's there and what's changed and what's new and, you know, and, and some of the principles that apply to what we're doing. And, um, anyway, really enjoyed it. It was, it was terrific. And, you know, Bob had a bunch of great insights, but the other folks who joined also had some terrific insights, you know, from their different experience than, you know, where Bob was when he wrote the book and where he is now. So I'm, I'm really digging that. Um, we're also doing, uh, twice a week member calls for the Top End Devs membership. And the next one is going to be on Friday, so tomorrow. And we're doing uh, resume reviews. And I'm going to walk through how to set your resume up to put you forward on the right foot. Because I'm seeing a bunch of people either quitting or getting laid off from different places for different reasons. And, you know, I want to be able to help folks. So that's going to be part of the deal, too. Um, and incidentally, if you want to get a copy of my resume, um, you know, I took like my cell number off of it. 
Um, if you want to get a copy of my resume so that you can kind of see how I've set things up and arranged things for, uh, you know, when I apply to, you know, contract positions or full-time positions, um, you can get that at topendevs.com slash resume. You just put your email address in, you get it for free. Um, and that's, that's kind of the stuff that I'm really focused on getting working and then just cleaning up the top end devs website with all the podcasts and stuff. So, yeah. Andy, what do you have going on? Ah, you guys have been busy doing real work. Um, I've been tied up moving, which is its own particular level of hell. Um, oh, man. And we've done this a, a sort of a couple times in the last number of years, but uh, this was one of those hard moves where it was a downsizing move. You know, the, the kids were up and grown and now we're trying to stuff everything into a much smaller venue. And uh, that's been a, that's been its own challenge, um, especially as we were doing some construction while we were moving. And the timing didn't quite work out between, you know, supply chain issues and labor issues and whatnot. We had every stuff. We had everything moving in before there was places ready for it. <laughs> so that was uh, that has been inordinately time consuming. Um, but we're almost uh, we're bet. almost out of the woods on that adventure. Um, and th the running joke now with my wife and I is we are never moving again. They're going to have to bury us here. That's that's it. We're we're done. That's <laughs> too hard. <laughs> um, so that's been some fun. Uh, but yeah, but as you said, I've been, um, continuing doing stuff with the grows method, which is at growsmethod.com. Um, we're actually about to have a, a public workshop, which we don't do a lot of, um, but we're about to have one come out in the first quarter. So if that's something that, uh, any of your listeners are interested in, traips over to growsmethod.com and sign up. We'll, we'll tell you when that's coming. Um, I am at pragmatic Andy on both Mastodon and the bird site. Um, so I'm pretty easy to find there. Uh, my web home is at toolshed.com. So if you're interested in any of the stuff that I'm involved in, whether it's Grows or the Pragmatic Bookshelf or my uh, fiction books uh, or my music hobby, um, you can find all of that there. And um, yeah, and I've been working on all of those. Um, I've got some short stories on the way. I've got some music compositions I've been working on. I've got some new workshops coming up. Um, maybe another book or two. We'll see what happens. Well, looking forward to it. Um, all right. Well, now we're going to go ahead and do picks. And that's just us shouting out about stuff we like. So, Dave, go ahead. All right. So, um, what's new? Well, I think the newest thing, uh, I have a Blackmagic camera because I like doing a bit of video work and stuff. And I've always just kind of done it just as you would normally with a handheld camcorder. But recently, I have gotten into cages. So Tilta makes a really nice cage for the Blackmagic camera that allows you to bolt on and do all kinds of cool things. And I can actually grab it. So you can turn your little point-and-shoot camera rig or whatever into this monstrosity of a, like, production quality level thing with all these add-ons, battery screens, and all this other stuff. So it's really cool. Awesome. I'm going to throw out some uh, picks. I always do a board game pick. I'm going to pick the game Camel Up. 
Um, it's a it's a pretty simple game. Um, you roll the dice, you move the camels, you can buy or bet on a camel. Um, anyway, fun stuff. So I'm going to pick camel up. Um, Board Game Geek rates it a 1.47, so it's it's a simple game, easy to pick up. Uh, kids can play it, and it's it's a fun game. It's a fast one too. It's like half hour, so I'll shout out about that. Um, and then my wife and I last night. I didn't realize that they had done it, but they we used to watch Criminal Minds. We really enjoyed that show, and they have on CBS Interactive slash Paramount Plus slash whatever they call it now. Um, they have a new series that's only on the Paramount Plus. And anyway, we watched the first episode and really enjoyed it. Um, I was wondering if it was going to be like a reboot of the show with the same characters or not. And it is basically at this point, a reboot of the show with the same characters, which is nice, right? Cause it's like, Oh, okay. It's, you know, two or three years later and their lives have moved along some and, you know, different things have affected them differently. And yeah. Um, anyway, we're digging that. So I'm going to pick that too. And then just remind people, you can watch the World Cup. I'm watching it. I'm loving it. Um, you can watch the replays for free on Tubi. That's T-U-B-I. And uh, so, yeah, I didn't have to go get another subscription. I just watch it on there. So that's what I've been doing. I've managed to stay mostly spoiler-free, too, if I've waited a day or two to see a match. So um, anyway, those are my picks. Uh, Andy, what are your picks? Oh, uh, so I'm sitting here thinking, golly, what have I, what have I been playing with lately? Um, so two things come to mind, <clears throat> one professional, one, one hobby. Um, on the profession side, I've always struggled to find an appropriate kind of to-do list sort of technology. And I used Trello for the longest time because I liked having the cards and the boards, but there wasn't really an easy way to you know, the way that I work, especially with, with all my different interests, I've got different companies and different uh, projects that I'm all working on. And I want like the one or two to do items on each list to get pulled up into a master sort of to do list for the day. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that's kind of a hard thing to do in most systems. You either have to go in and like deliberately set statuses and do magic filters and, and all kinds of this kabuki dance. And it, it's very cumbersome. Um, so I abandoned, and the other thing that happens is, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but anytime any to-do list technology, you get to a point where you have to declare a list bankruptcy because the to-do list has gotten so big and there's so much stuff jammed in it. You will never complete (laughs) these items before the heat death of the universe. So it becomes like a doom box. You know, you've thrown all this stuff in and you're never going to get to it. So that happened to me with Trello. Um, I had so much stuff stuffed in it. It's like, fine, I'm just calling it to-do bankruptcy. And I moved on and tried ClickUp. And ClickUp is a really nice tool in concept. It's very flexible. You can, anything that you put in, you can view as a list or as a table, you know, sort of Kanban style, mm-hmm. um, or as a, 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 as, as, a, as a table or a list, you know, thing of cards or just a straight up list. So you've got these different views you can do with everything. It's got a lot of nice stuff. The problem is it is slow as a pig on stilts. It's just very painful to use. And 
they do something that a lot of modern apps do that absolutely gives me a migraine. When you're trying to scroll or move your cursor over the, the field for any reason, everything you go over suddenly blows up extra big to show you do detail. It's like this default hover zoom kind of thing, which when you've got a number of cards or, or things you're working with, it literally, it's like giving me like, like, you know, photosensitive epilepsy. It's just bang, you know, right in your face. And, and I cannot stand that. And they're, it's not unique to them. I mean, this is a anti-pattern in a lot of UX these days. Um, so I've moved and, mm -hmm. and <laughs> I used ClickUp for about a year or two and it suffered the same problem Trello had for some reason. All the lists got really big. So I declared bankruptcy on that one and moved on to Linear. Um, and Linear is very nice. Um, it's cross-platform, runs on Linux uh, and web browser and Mac and, and Windows. And the nice thing about that is it was clearly designed by developers because everything's got a keyboard shortcut. You know, chains of, and, and it's not like Emacs pinky where you have to control alt Apple F1 six nonsense. It's, you know, you know, you want to change the status to, to urgent, you hit SU return. Boom. So it's, you know, that sort of thing, you know, very simple keystrokes, uh, very easy to go in and do its business. Um, there, I had a question, their tech support got like right back to me with, with, with a thing. Um, so there, uh, until I fill it up, um, they're my current favorite in that world. And then, um, on the, on the uh, hobby side, they added this, um, spec to the MIDI, uh, specification for, uh, piano keyboards, you know, electronic keyboards synthesizer keyboards mm -hmm. with polyphonic expression. And there's been this nice trend all of a sudden with a couple of, you know, not many, but like say four or five sort of boutique manufacturers who are moving the state of the art beyond pressing a key down to get a note. And, you know, we've had for many years now, well, if you press the key faster and harder, you get a different value than if you press it lightly, dynamite. But now we're getting much more of you. After you've hit the note, you can press the key harder and get data out of it. You can wiggle your finger side to side. You can wiggle your finger from the back of the keys to the front. You can do these different sort of gestural controls on what's more or less a standard looking key bed to get a wide range of expressive capabilities that did not exist, you know, sort of before. Um, and there was, you know, a few vintage synths back in the day that had this, but it, it was expensive and it never really caught on, but, you know, material science and, um, you know, the increasing race with Moore's law to get more on smaller chips now gives us a lot more ability to do some really cool things, um, in that space. So I'm watching a couple of them, you know, if you are on like Kickstarters, if you are out as real projects and, um, I think there's, there's some real excitement there that we can do a lot more with synthesizers or even orchestral simulation uh, than was possible before. And that's the kind of tech that I, I really excites me that that lights me up. I'm looking at linear because you, you've basically explained my, my whole existence with any <laughs> list option. <laughs> Ryan Bates recently recommended linear too, I think on Twitter. 
Yeah, it's uh, it it looks like it's a project management tool, but is it, if that's the right one, linear dot app. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So it's it has a lot of All features right, that I'm not using, but you can tie into to pull requests, <clears throat> which you shouldn't be using on a mm-hmm. in, internal development project. Uh, that's a side note, but um, but yeah, it's uh. It, it does a lot of stuff. So if you're doing that kind of thing, it's it's got you covered. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Andy. This was a fun chat. And, you know, a lot of stuff I agree with, a handful of things I want to go look deeper in. And, yeah. Awesome. And, and you know, it, it just, I've I've said this in a lot of keynote addresses. It's like my fond wish is to come in and talk for an hour about the very most important things that we need in programming and have everyone in the audience nod and say, yes, Andy, that's what we're doing. That's what I, I want to be, mm-hmm. to have the most boring keynote because everything I'm saying, people are already doing. Wouldn't that be, that? that's my goal. That's my professional goal. And right. we're not there yet. <laughs> All right. Well, till next time, folks, Max out.